A story told of how a shepherd, a simple shepherd, was appointed by the Shah of Iran to be the prime minister of that country. The Shah appointed him simply because of one characteristic, and that is his faithfulness. And of course, as natural, and you can imagine, the other cabinet members were indignant. They were angry. They felt they're the ones who come from the upper class. They're the ones who have received the higher education. They are the ones who are refined and sophisticated. They are the ones who are master politicians. <laughs> they are the ones who should be appointed to that position, at least one of them. And out of jealousy and out of envy, they conspired to bring some sort of accusation against the king's own choice. So they watched his movements. They watched the prime minister very closely. They watched his coming and they watched his going. And, and they put him under a microscope. But they found nothing objectionable. Except for one thing. They noticed that one day a week, he goes into a small room in the palace that he kept locked all the time. And that he goes in there for one hour every week. They said, aha, we caught him red-handed. We know he must be there in that small room seeing all the precious possessions, the treasures that he has stolen from the king. And they brought the accusations to the king. And the king doubted their accusations. But nonetheless, he gives them permission to break in and search that small room, that locked room. And to their utter amazement, as they looked in that small room, they only found a small bundle that contained a dilapidated pair of shoes and a robe. And when they brought the prime minister before the king, the prime minister was asked, why had you kept these two items in a locked up room? Is what he said. I wore those things when I was a shepherd. And once a week I go into that room and look at them. Lest I should forget what I once was. And how unworthy of all the kindness and the honor that your majesty had bestowed upon me. I want to challenge you that if there's one thing that's going to pull you out of discouragement and out of your doldrum is to go back into your life's album and pull out your past and look where you were without Christ. Look at where, where your life was before the blessings of God. And then you will remember where you have come from. And soon you'll be soaring high. And I want you to contrast this attitude of the prime minister of Persia with the attitude of the full day laborers that worked in the vineyard that the parable the Lord Jesus Christ gives us in Matthew chapter 20. Turn with me please in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. This is a very significant and important parable. And please listen to me very carefully. What Jesus is telling the people here, it is something that is as common when you talk to the New Yorkers about traveling in the subway. <laughs> It's a daily experience. It is like talking to the Californians about the traffic jams in the expressway. Having lived there for two years, I know what that's like. It is a common experience. Because daily, men came 
and stood in a certain area is like a labor exchange and waited for some vineyard owner. They waited for some herd keeper to come down and hire them for just one day because that's all they could hope for. One day at a time. One day at a time. That's all they wanted. A normal working day back then began at 6 o'clock in the morning and ended at 6 o'clock at night. And when you think you got it tough, please read that very carefully. (laughs) We forget what manual labor is like. Some people think that manual labor is the name of the prime minister of Mexico or something. (laughs) It's a strange language to us. We live in such a day where the prisoners, the inmates, the criminals who are behind bars... Suing the government with taxpayers' money if their ice cream is melted. Let me just think how far we have come. And yet these men, for all of their 12-hour labor, they received a dinaris or a drachma, equivalent to today's money of a quarter or 25 cents. And with that, they fed their whole family. Of course, it's the most basic food, but they fed their whole family. And Jesus said, that the vineyard owner came first thing in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, and he found a group of men who were standing there. He said, get up there and work in the vineyard. Then he came back at 9 o'clock in the morning, and he found some more people. He said, go and work in the vineyard. With the first group, he made an agreement. He said, I'll pay you the dinaris. That's the going rate. That's what they pay a laborer for a day. But you notice that the other groups that he hired later on, he never told them how much he's going to pay them. He said, just go and work, and I'll do the right thing by you. And by faith, they went ahead and worked. 12 noon, he goes back to that labor exchange and a few more men were standing. He said, you go too. And then at 5 o'clock in the evening, with only one hour of work left, he goes there and he finds some more men. And he said, you too, go and work in my vineyard. Now vineyards mostly are planted on a terraced hill. And the soil up there is not as good as the soil down in the valley. And consequently, many times these laborers would go all the way down in the valley, carry some of the good soil on their backs and go up the hill and deposit this good soil on that vineyard. But the most important time for vineyard workers, it was September, because that was the time of the harvest. They had to gather all the grapes before the end of September, otherwise it would rot on the trees. And September is a very hot month in the Middle East, if some of you probably know that. Usually laborers who worked in vineyards, they were near the bottom of the socioeconomic level. Normally, these people were working from job to job, day to day, because there were no guarantees of finding a job the next day. Because these people were unskilled, They were desperate for work. They often were vulnerable and were taken advantage of by a dishonest foreman. And that is why God's word commands his people in Leviticus 19, 13, saying, The wages of the hired man are not to remain with you all night till morning. Pay him on time and don't swindle him. Pay him on time and pay him the exact amount that he deserves. In other words, don't you cheat your laborers. 
In Deuteronomy 24, 15, it tells us that if the poor man is not paid his wages at that night, that he's going to cry at nighttime, he's going to cry to God, and that will be counted sin against you. Now this parable of the landowner, when Jesus hired them, did not offer them any amount of money. Only the first group. The other people took it by faith that he's going to pay them something. And to the rest of them, he said, just go. Go and work. Pay time came. (laughs) And the owner starts by paying the ones who worked between five to six, one hour, he pays them first. And he pays them a denarius, one. I want you to just use your imagination with me just for a bit. But the guys who worked for 12 hours, they looked over there and they saw one denarius. And that's what they were contracted to work for one day. But he's paying those who worked for one hour. And they said, oh, Christmas come all of a sudden. You know, <laughs> Great. They whipped up their solar operated calculator. And they said, one hour denarius, we're going to get 12. And they got excited. And they were happy. And they were joyful and they were glad. That's all in my imagination, of course. Then they looked down again, and then they saw the landowner. He's paying those who worked six hours. <laughs> and he too gave them, oops, denarius for those. And he didn't take much of a knowledge of arithmetic to know that it's going to be only two. If that works out, the same with them. Six hours, one denarius. Twelve hours must be two. And then when they saw the laborers who worked for nine hours... <laughs> Being paid one denarius too, you can tell there's a sinking feeling was beginning to take place in the heart. Uh-oh, we really banked on the, on the wrong amount here. And you know what happened? Self-pity began to sit in. Please listen carefully. Be careful when self-pity begins to take hold in your life. Be very careful of the first signs for self-pity in your life. Because it means that murmuring and griping and complaining are not too far behind. Be careful when you begin to hold a pity party. You know what? I got news for you. Jesus ain't going to show up. He just does not show up at pity parties. He will show up at victory parties, but not pity parties. He doesn't like pity parties. Someone said that being overcome with envy and jealousy... The overcome with self-pity is like running into the ocean. The deeper you go, the harder it is you're going to be able to come back. But I don't believe it's impossible for God to bring you back from wherever you are. So by the time those 12-hour workers were getting paid, they received that one denarius, and man, they lashed out. They just could not hold that anymore. They screamed, they said, we have worked hard, we have worked long, and we get paid exactly like the others who have just started working not so long ago. We get paid the same amount of money. You know what I personally think? It's my hunch, and therefore when I tell you it's my hunch, it's not the word of God. You can take it and throw it away if you don't want it, but that's fine. It's just my, my hunch. Is that they were mad so much that they not necessarily because they wanted to be paid more as much as they wanted the others to be paid less. It's my hunch. I want to put this parable in context so you understand what Jesus is getting at here. The last few verses in chapter 19, Peter was displaying the attitude of one of those 12-hour workers. 
What he was saying to Jesus, a use of translation, so you don't tell me your Bible doesn't say it. He said, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What's in it for us? (laughs) What did Jesus do? He basically tells him that God is no man's debtor. That God is going to reward you based on your faithfulness. That God is going to return back to you multiples of what you have done for Him. That there's not a sacrifice that is lost. He said, not only in heaven do you expect that, but right here on earth. God is no man's debtor. God is no person who's sitting there and basically doesn't care how faithful you are. Yes, He does. And that is why this passage has nothing to do with the believer's rewards in heaven. They're going to vary depending on how faithful you have been with God. But this parable has everything to do with salvation. Jesus is talking about salvation. Please hear me right. This parable is not about the believer's reward. Did you hear that? It is about those who are saved early in life and those who are saved late in life. The problem with some Christians who have been believers for so many years, they've been walking with the Lord and been members of a church for a long time. The temptation is to get jaded spirit. They develop an attitude of knowing it all. There's nothing you're going to tell me that I don't know. Or being that take their salvation for granted. Or think that there is something special about them that made them believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They can easily develop a self-righteous, pharisaic attitude about their faith. That is the temptation of many believers. Is they begin to think that they know God's sense of justice. That they know God's sense of fairness. And they end up making mistakes. A.B. Simpson, speaking to some of these type of believers about keeping good spiritual health. He said, one hour of fretting will drain more of your vitality than a week of work. One minute of rankling jealousy and knowing envy will hurt you more than a drink of poison. And so Jesus said to these ones who have worked for 12 hours, those complainers, those who are murmuring, those who are discontented, those who are dissatisfied, those who are jealous, Jesus says, saying, wasn't that our agreement with you for the work that you're going to work today for a denarius? Are you questioning my grace? Are you questioning my generosity? Are you questioning my sovereignty to do whatever I will? Did we not have the agreement ahead of time? So what is the point of the story? The point of the story is this. God is a sovereign God. Say it with me. God is a sovereign God. And He ain't about to abdicate for you or anybody. (laughs) And whether the person is saved is at the age of seven or the age of 70, both are going to go to heaven. Those who see themselves as deserving more of God's grace because of their early salvation are blind with jealousy. They are blind with envy. Those who see themselves to be far more deserving because of the length of their salvation history are ignorant of God's grace. Those early workers were jealous. They were envious. Not because of reason, but because of selfishness. Will you hear me just for a minute? You're not going to like what I'm going to tell you. That's why I'm getting your attention. (laughs) 
The root of jealousy is selfishness. And selfishness is an idolatry. At the core of envy, you're going to find selfishness and self-centeredness lurking there in the dark. The accusation of the landowner being unfair is grounded not on love for justice, but grounded on self-serving attitude. What they have received was based on agreement that they made with the landowner. It is based on the contract that was signed. Jealousy and envy are very destructive to the Christian life. Jealousy and envy can keep you from receiving the blessings of God in order to flow through you. I want to tell you here's one way to test if you are a jealous or envious person or not. Here's one way to do that. Find out whom you criticize the most. Whom do you criticize the most? And when you get the answer, you're going to find that people always criticize the one whom they secretly envy. Envy is the mother of the critical spirit. I want to ask you this. When you see someone who is more blessed than you are, do you rejoice with them? When you see someone saved later in life, do you rejoice with them? When you see someone is more gifted than you are, are you glad? When you see someone who is succeeding probably where you have not, do you give thanks to God? I read about the Sunday school teacher who, uh, and I thought about these workers of the 12 hours and complaining and murmuring. And this Sunday school teacher was talking to a group of boys. And he said, now, boys, what is the thing that God cannot do? And the kids came up with all kinds of answers. And finally, a little boy piped up and he said, he can't please everybody. (laughs) And how true it is. He can't please everybody. Somebody's going to (laughs) gripe. Now, just in case some of you are in business, think that this is how you're going to go back and pay your employees... (laughs) And you think that I am giving you a, or Jesus is giving us uh, some new economic or business theory. Stop it. Don't get me into that trouble. (laughs) That's not what he's doing here. Jesus is teaching us a spiritual principle. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven. God the Father is the vineyard owner. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the foreman or the steward. The vineyard is God's kingdom. The laborers are all the believers. The denarii's eternal life. And the work day is the believer's lifetime of service. Jesus is not asking you to go out and run your business accordingly. That is not what he's saying here. But God's sovereign principle for salvation is very simple. Whosoever comes to the God the Father through Jesus the Son will be saved will make it to heaven. Whether their sins are big or sins are small, whether they have sinned for a long time or for a short time, whether they have long dedicated service for God or they had a bedtime conversion, they're both going to go to heaven. The Apostle Paul was killing Christians, persecuting Christians. And yet James was basically committed to the Lord from the moment he met him. They both are going to go to heaven. 
The thief on the cross did not have a moment to serve the living God. But John lived till he was in his 90s serving God faithfully in Ephesus. They both are going to go to heaven. They're not going to get the same reward. But they both are going to heaven. They both receive eternal life. I want to remind you again, Jesus here is not talking about the believer's reward. He's talking about salvation, eternal life, heaven. Because according to 1 Corinthians 4 and 5 and Revelation 22 and 12, the Lord will reward His faithfulness based on the degree of their faithfulness. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, he said that the Lord in the last day will test the work of every believer and he's going to test it with fire. And accordingly, the believer will be rewarded. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about eternal life, which will be awarded to everyone who comes in humility and brokenness and repentance and faith to God the Father through God the Son. And you know what? As I reflected upon this parable several times, I I realized that from a human perspective, it seemed to be unfair. But from a divine perspective, it's perfectly fair. It is perfectly just. You ask why? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I'm anxious to tell you. Because no one of us, no one is worthy of salvation. No one. Because eternal life is a gracious gift of God for which only the Lord Jesus Christ could have paid for. With God there is no big sin or small sin. Sin is sin. Before you become jealous or envious of another Christian, ask yourself, where would you have been without the grace of God? Where would you be? Where would I have been without the grace of God? But for the grace of God, you and I deserve hell. I know that some evangelicals and some believers think that because they have committed their life to Jesus Christ on the basis of that decision, they're going to heaven. That's worse than works. But before you ever committed your life to Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit reached down to the pair of eyes with which you are born, but they were closed and blind. God the Holy Spirit reached down and He opened those eyes that you're able to see yourself as a sinner needing repentance and needing to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Reformers call that irresistible grace. It is all of grace. Nothing we have but of grace. Because I want to tell you the grace of God is the only basis on which we can get into heaven. When you go to heaven, what are you going to say, Jesus? I made a good decision, Lord Jesus, and I chose you. But my neighbor is an idiot. He did not choose you. No. That would be works. And the Bible does not teach us salvation and justification by works, but by pure faith in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you that coming from good families could not and will not deliver you from hell. That having high education could never deliver you from hell. That having a social status cannot ever deliver you from hell. That having a church membership, I don't care which church it is, it can never deliver you from hell. Being sophisticated and suave and debonair could never deliver you from hell. Being successful in your business or successful in your profession could never deliver you from hell. The only thing that can deliver you and me from hell is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless God. 
It is only the sovereign grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ that will qualify you and will qualify me to receive the denarius, eternal life. And don't you ever, ever forget it. I thought about this a great deal. Envy, jealousy, feeling sorry for yourself, self-pity, pity parties. And I want to give you my conclusion. Feeling sorry for yourself or living in self-pity weeps on the devil's shoulder. It's like turning to Satan for comfort. Here's Satan's invitation. Contrast that to the Lord Jesus' invitation. Here's Satan's invitation. Come unto me, all who are grieved, peeved, misused, and disgruntled and victimized. And I'll spread on the sympathy. (laughs) You will find me an ever-failing source of the meanest attitude and the most selfish sort of misery. At my altar, Satan says, you may feel free to fail and to fall. There you will sigh and you'll fret. There I will feed your soul on fears and indulge your ego with envy and jealousy and bitterness and spite. There I will excuse you from every cross, from every duty, from every hardship. And I'll permit you to yield to every temptation. That's Satan's invitation. But the Lord Jesus' invitation is very different. Cast all The burdens of temptation for jealousy, envy, self-pity, victimization, whatever it may be. Cast all these burdens upon him, says the Lord Jesus. And I will not give you sympathy, I'll give you victory. Late in the week, I saw something in this parable that I didn't see earlier in the week. It tells me something that is so precious and so incredibly wonderful. And it tells me this. As long as a person has a breath, as long as a person is breathing, there is hope for their salvation. Have you prayed for someone and they haven't believed yet? Even though they may be living in the 11th hour, take heart. Keep on praying. God can bring them to the vineyard even at the 11th hour. Are you a person who is seeking and searching Are you a person who probably beginning to think, well, it's too late for me? It's never too late. Turn your life to the Lord today. Let the sovereign king give you his denarius, give you his eternal life. If you seek him with all your heart, says the scripture, you will find him. As the Spirit of God brought you to a point of conviction, as the Spirit of God in speaking to you, And telling you that this message was for you. That I had it prepared just for you. That the Spirit of God wants to talk. If it's just you, it's for you alone. Has the Spirit of God spoken to you today? Are you sitting in your pity party? Get up. Jesus wants his light to shine upon you. He wants to give you his victory. Not his sympathy. Are you a person who... I've never understood what it is to inherit eternal life. That it is all of grace, pure grace, nothing but grace. And you thought that you have to work for it. You have to make an effort for it. And the Spirit of God brought you to a conviction. Surrendering to that grace. 
Let it overwhelm you. Let it overcome you. I want to tell you there is nothing greater in the walk with Christ than that. Because the grace of God is sufficient for all your needs, for all your life, for all your family life, for your business, for everything. Let the grace of God overwhelm you today. Heavenly Father, you know the heart of each of us. You know my heart, Lord. And only you understand the reason, the purpose for which each of your servants have stirred. And our eyes are upon you, Lord Jesus, and not upon other men and women. We are focusing on you right now because we know that our sufficiency is in you and in your grace. Overwhelm us with the power of your grace that, Father, we may accept rejoicing in eternal life that you've given us. We receive it by faith. And we'd like to serve you, Father, with all of our faithfulness. Will you strengthen us, please? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.